Cities can be places of beauty, places that stand the test of time, either having evolved in keeping with a clear and powerful idea, or sometimes due to leaders that have, again, consistently over time, acted in keeping with the long-term interests of the city, as opposed to getting distracted by whims and trends or political machinations of any one moment in time. And I don't want to sound naive about this, because the truth is, there always are and always will be tensions in our city building, interests and values that bump up one against the other. Political ideas and regimes change as do people, work, technologies, and even today, the weather. Paris to many of us is a city about monuments and museums, and it excels at being that. But in the 21st century, Paris is seeking to become even more. Paris is seeking to become a vibrant place for people to live out their everyday lives. Now, this is a very different kind of place than a place that is meant primarily for tourists. But how does a city change? How does a city like Paris change? Most people, when they look at Paris on a map, they think of a city that is pretty much done. Streets and blocks that are designed and built out. Why does Paris even want to change? Well, the truth is, Paris has a change agenda. Paris has been making headlines, but not for the usual reasons. This is in part because there are parts of Paris that aren't exactly what you think. Paris, just like many other cities, needs transformation on its edges. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. Urban Future Global Conference, I was thrilled to catch up with Marion Waller, who has the unique job of linking together political decisions and the administration. So those that are elected with those who work in the bureaucracy, bridging the gap between the vision for the future city and the work that takes place on the ground, the hard work, the work that is about just getting the job done. And her work focuses on change, on transforming the suburbs of Paris. She is an advisor to the deputy mayor of Paris, who is in charge of urban planning, innovation, and attractiveness. This is the third part of our five-part Vienna series. Listen in. So I'm here in Vienna in studio with Marion, and I have to say uh, we've had some technical difficulties. And as we've been setting up the podcast, I've discovered that Marion is a planner and a philosopher. Uh, I'm a planner and a philosopher. It's a rare combination. I have to begin with this. Tell me, what does having a background in philosophy um, do for your planning? How does it position the way you approach your work as a planner and a city builder? Um, actually, before I thought there were no links between uh, my <clears throat> my philosophy studies and my planning studies because I, were, I was more uh, doing environmental philosophy. But more and more, I'm, I'm thinking that I should definitely link both. And I, I realized how much studying uh, philosophy of environment has influenced me about architecture. And uh, so I'm really interested about uh, 
like um, biomimetics and uh, and how um, how we should reinvent the relation between uh, human beings and their environment and it has really influenced me the way i see architecture for example i am i'm really interested in biosource materials in uh, in uh, new shapes in urban agriculture and uh, i really think that we we can no more make this di distinction between nature and the city so i would say That's the main way it influences me, influences me. And it's also what the city of Paris is actually uh, pushing for. So it's a good thing. Okay, so let's come back to that in a little bit. Before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit for our listeners about your job because you have a very cool job in one of the most amazing cities on earth in Paris. Here you are working, reporting directly to the deputy mayor, yep. and you are all about creating sustainable cities, transforming the city to become something fundamentally different than what it is today. Tell us a little bit about what it is that you do in this role. Okay, so... My deputy mayor, he's in charge of many things. Uh, he's in charge of urban planning, architecture, but also economic development, uh, attractiveness, and the Greater Paris projects. And it's the first time that all those different uh, missions are, are together. And I think that's very interesting because we can... Uh, act both on the, the shape of the city, the architecture, but also about uh, how we want to attract startups, um, how we can uh, like foster the partnership with the suburb cities, which is a big topic now in the greater Paris. And so my job basically is um, to make the link between uh, the political decisions made by the mayor and the deputy mayor and uh, the administration and the way the administration will implement those policies. And of course, to make the link with a lot of people uh, outside of the city hall who are uh, architects, who are developers, who are journalists, and to, to explain what we do and to, to try to, uh, to send some good signals to the market. So, we'll, we'll, so I, wanna, I, I really want to talk about this change agenda that you're advancing in Paris. You said something in your presentation this morning which really made me chuckle. You talked about how, um, you know, Paris is an old city. This idea of infill and changing the city is difficult for people to get their heads around. And someone once said that to me about Toronto. Uh, what's left to do in Toronto? Toronto's all built up. Well, if Toronto's built up, then, you know, it, Paris really is a museum <laughs> in comparison. And yet your job is all about changing the city, about making it something different, about adapting the city. And here in our mind's eye, most of us can very quickly pull up a mental image of Parish. It seems like it's done. It's a city that's finished. And yet here your job is about making it something new. Tell me a bit about how you manage that tension. Yeah, exactly. It's a big tension and the big public debate now in Paris because, uh, of course, tourists know Paris more for its monuments uh, and for its museums. But what we try to do is uh, is really to show that innovation is possible all everywhere in Paris and also in the historical center uh, because uh, innovation is not only about building towers and we try to to have this uh, different message to other cities, for example, to, to Dubai or even to London, which has so many tower projects now. We want to show that in Paris, uh, like um, architectural innovation is more about like 
delicacies, a very fine thing that can be very small, but that can have an important impact. And um, and so we there is not a lot of land that remains uh, uh, buildable in Paris, but the big challenge is really to to transform all the areas which are at the edges of Paris and which are along the ring road and which make the link between Paris and the suburbs. That's where some land remains. That's where we have our big projects. And, uh, and the aim is really to, to create new links and in the future to change also the ring road itself because it's really one of the big problems in Paris is that Paris is too small. So like... <laughs> How do you add more people when you've got this really constrained urban environment that already has what feels like a relatively static urban fabric? How do you add change? How do you add more people? And you talked a bit about that. One of the other presenters this morning talked about the DNA of a city and the story of a city. How do you link these changes and the tension between city and suburb to the future story of Paris? Like, how do you make sure that when you're introducing, for example, a tall building, that you're not fundamentally ripping the heart out of the DNA that makes Paris, Paris? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we know that the DNA of Paris will always be based on Haussmann, and that's very important in the heart of Parisian people. And the aim is, of course, not to, to change that important historical part of our of our story, but it's the our job is really to create a storytelling for some parts of Paris, which didn't have a storytelling because, like Haussmann and the muni- monuments are really very centered in Paris. And right, so right. the question is, what happens to um, a person that lives uh, just along the ring road, not in a Haussmannian building, but in a new area? And that's really where we have great things to do because. Sometimes um, modern architecture, it's true that it has always been difficult in Paris because compared to Haussmann, uh, architects are a bit uh, shy, like they don't know how <laughs> yeah. to behave. How do you dip your toe in that water? <laughs> it feels a bit fragile. So that's why we are organizing competitions. That's why we are really um, pushing for new architecture and for innovation because we think there is space for, um, for a new type of architecture that uh, that can really give us a, a storytelling to some areas that didn't have one. So let's talk about this competition a little bit. Um, I was interested to hear you talking about the challenge of having these development sites and how this, the city has historically sold those sites off and decided to take a new approach to actually be the developer, to be the innovator, to be the uh, facilitator of getting innovative ideas. And I loved the building that you showed. I think it was called In Vivo, the... Mm. With the yeah. living biomass, the algae that's used for medical science on the yeah. facade of the building. Tell us a little bit about that story of how Paris shifted the view of its own role in encouraging and really precipitating these kinds of innovations that I think you could argue are innovative on a global scale. Tell us about the municipal role for that. Yeah, so... I think clearly there is a rule, um, uh, uh, sorry, um, a change in uh, the way we we see planning because uh, in a a lot of cities, planning is seen more um, like a department where you say no to people. (laughs) People (laughs) submit their building permits and you say, no, it has to be like that. 
it should be lower. It's about regulation. Yeah, it's and that's the approach most people have of planning. Like as as a citizen, it's uh, it's often uh, very regulatory. And so when we launched this competition, which was called Reinventing Paris, the idea was really to open the game and for one time to say, okay, this time it won't be the city of Paris which will say at this place it has to be uh, housing uh, units, uh, so social housing, or it has to be office, it has to be retail. We wanted the game to be completely open and that was a revolution for the way of working uh, at the city of Paris because we let uh, collective intelligence uh, decide for what was best for sites. So that means we let uh, multidisciplinary teams formed by architects, by developers, by NGOs, by artists, uh, create a common project that would be submitted to the municipality. And then our role was to choose the best project. But our role was not to impose uh, something a priori. So, but didn't that make the public really nervous? Weren't people kind of afraid? Okay, you're opening up the reins. You said it would be open to collective intelligence. How did the public? Because regulation, in some ways, gives people confidence that they know what to expect. A six-story building is permitted, or an eight-story building is permitted. You know, you're going to get an eight-story building or a six-story building on that site. When you say, well, hold on a minute, let's actually think out of the box. Let's allow the urban fabric to become something fundamentally different than it is to today. Let's allow the collective intelligence to decide. Uh, presumably, you've got a lot of architects and planners and engineers that are bringing forward their ideas. How does the public engage in that process and how do you build the confidence in the public that the secret sauce? the DNA of the city isn't going to be compromised through that process. How did, how did you manage that in real time? Mm. So um, we, um, we tried to, to encourage the teams, the candidates, to, to really um, make public participation themselves. If we didn't want the city to be the only one to organize meetings and everything. Oh, you outsourced it. I so, like that. <laughs> So actually, we we set up nine challenges of innovation in that competition. And one challenge was about public participation. So we were asking the participant teams to propose new ways of of involving the public during the competition, after the competition. And and some teams even included at the end uh, some citizens of the area which became part of the team and who won. And so it's, it, it also became their project. So, and it was quite difficult because since it's a competition, projects had to remain secret. We couldn't show, show the projects. Right. So it was, uh, I know it was frustrating for some people because um, we were saying a competition is happening, but we cannot show the project. But right. at the end, the reaction was really good because... As I said, like no project is really uh, uh, defigurating Paris. I mean, there is no. Um, uh, the projects are very innovative, but they are also very respectful of uh, what Paris is, and I think that was very much appreciated by the by the public. And there was no big contest against uh, against the project because we chose the project also uh, on the basis of if they were respectful or not. 
Well, so that's very interesting to me because um, having seen some of the photos, and I'd love for you to describe some of the projects so that we can create for some of our Invisible City listeners a mental image of what these projects look like. But interesting architecture, tall buildings, lots of green on the buildings, you know, integrated into the balconies and the rooftops. Frequently, the projects combined a variety of different elements, different uses, the Republican private uses that were a part of the projects. Uh, but really very different in terms of architectural style from anything, I think you could argue from anything ever seen on the globe, like just really unique one-off projects. And on the one hand, it seems to me like there must be an appetite for transformation and for change and for reinvestment. And on the other hand, there must be a real openness to doing things in a fundamentally different way, which in a historic city is quite profound. I've worked in much lesser historic cities where uh, there's a real fear of losing the heart and soul of the city. So describe a couple of the projects, just if you could create a little bit of a picture of what made them so special and made them so unique, because it must be those elements that made those projects something different that appealed to the hearts and minds of Parisians. So in fact, the projects are very different and we wanted the sites at the beginning to represent all the challenges we have to we have in Paris. So the sites we proposed in the competition, uh, they were so different. Like there was one uh, old mansion in the Marais in the center of Paris. Um, there was uh, like space over the ring road. There was wasteland. And so the idea was really to show that innovation is possible in different manners and in different sites. So, of course, in the historical sites, you know, innovation was not uh, so much about transforming the building because uh, the building has to be had to be uh, maintained. But on some other sites, the the architectural creativity was completely open. So, for example, one project, which is in an area which is a uh, a bit new in Paris, in the south of Paris. Uh, one project is completely about uh, food, and so it's a wooden tower entirely dedicated to food consumption and production. So in the same building, you will find a, a public market a laboratory for um, uh, uh, managed by a university uh, for new types of food, urban agriculture, and uh, housing units for for chefs. And that actually what makes the building so, so special is that it combines so many different uses. And the fact that the team since the beginning has included so many different people makes the building so special. And, um, and so that's one example, but for example, uh, so let's oh, yeah. just stick with that one yeah. for a minute. So in that instance, did the proponent also bring forward a financial model? Or is this supported or paid for in some way by the municipality? Or is it a revenue-generating entity? What's the model uh, that gets that kind of a project off the ground in Paris? It was compulsory to have a business model because the aim of this competition is to sell land to the private sector. So we cannot subsidize the projects since we are selling land to them. Right. So it was really crucial that the teams show they have a business model but on our side, we accepted to sell some land for cheaper that, than we could uh, have done in, a, in another way. So that means we didn't fix price at the beginning. We wanted 
the price to be adapted to each project. So for example, if there was a proposition for a luxury hotel, we wanted the price to be very high, but on the same side, there could be a proposal for emergency housing shelter, and we accepted the price to be low. So in some ways, it was like in, the land was an indirect subsidy to the business model of the project, and each proponent brought forward a slightly different model that then they negotiated with the municipality. Is that yeah. sort of how it worked? Yeah, I mean, they um, they they find a, they propose a price that is adequate to their program so that they can have an economic model, and we accept that transaction. So, what was proposed for the old mansion? And so for the old mansions, uh, there is uh, one project about um, fashion and like uh, that will, uh, so it's really in the heart of the Marais, it's very expensive uh, area of Paris, but they are proposing um, working spaces and like showrooms for very young uh, fashion designers so that they have the opportunity to show their creations in the heart of Paris while they, they don't have opportunities usually. So an incubator really for yeah, an incubator young, young for, fashion designers. For young creators. And then uh, in another old building, uh, the, the winning project is a movie theater uh, that, uh, that really uh, renovates. It's a, um, an old uh, electrical substation, a very beautiful building. And here there will be a movie theater with three uh, movie rooms and, be and beautiful views on Paris. And here also they found a, an economic model. Fantastic. So it's interesting to see that actually very different projects can, um, can emerge uh, in Paris and also a lot of cultural uh, projects. So are there other subsidies, subsidies around economic development, around promoting culture from other levels of government that were sort of cobbled together in order to make these projects viable? I'm asking the question because I'm trying to suspend my own disbelief because we have challenges getting these types of projects off the ground in the North American context and in particular in a city like Toronto where even mm -hmm. if there is some land, there's an ongoing operating cost that makes it very challenged to make these models work. Maybe Paris has a density that makes it work better. Maybe it's the fact that everyone is so close together. Uh, maybe it is the density, I'm not sure. But is, are there other, for most of these projects, were, was it simply uh, a a somewhat of a gifting on the land that made the overall model work? Was that it? Um, I mean, most of the projects are really co entirely privately funded. Like they, they didn't get other subsidies. But I think uh, this competition created a reflection um, uh, among the developers to create new economic models because they, they also realized that a lot of different cities are actually asking, you know, for cultural places and that if they want to build in a, in a city like Paris, they have to offer more than the classical uh, real estate program and they have to offer green space, they have to offer mixed use and uh, and open spaces. So wow. it well. was like part of the competition really to, to find these new models um, that can equilibrate, like you can have like... Uh, 
private housing, but uh, but more open uh, space underground. You know what I love about this is it really gets to the heart of 21st century city building, which is about being catalytic, about bringing together a whole variety. You know, you talked about interdisciplinary teams, but bringing together a whole variety of interests and recognizing that there is a role for the municipality in facilitating that. But there's also a responsibility on the part of private industry exactly. to be coming to the city and saying, this is how we will be city builders. This is how we will make the city uh, uh, something that is shared, something that is prosperous for everyone. Pushing that back on private industry, I think, is, um, well, you've demonstrated it in your model that it can work. If you provide the quality places, uh, interesting sites, obviously the support of the municipality. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Ring Road proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, you know, I have a very personal interest in this because we've proposed in the city of Toronto over our existing rail corridor to build a 21-acre park to cantilever okay. over that rail corridor. The trains will continue to function. They're a critical part of the transportation system into the downtown core. But we're essentially... In the center of the city, like you're trying to do with the ring road, healing a gap between city and suburbs, we're trying to heal a gap right in the heart of the city by creating this park that provides public space, but also links to really critical areas of the city. Mm -hmm. You had a proposal that came forward for building over top of the ring road. Tell us a little bit about the size, the scale of that, the program, uh, the feat of engineering <laughs> that's involved in that. Because yeah. it looked to me like, you know, if, if 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 you can pull that project off, just imagine being able to replicate it along the ring road in multiple locations. It would be, it would be completely transformative in terms of how people experience moving through the city. Yeah, in fact, one of the iconic projects uh, from this uh, competition is uh, it's called Thousand Trees. And so it's um, the winning project on a site which is uh, which is uh, the west part of the Ring Road of Paris. And we propose to the teams to build like um, a building which would also be a bridge between Paris and the suburbs. And the winning proposal was really different from the others because they proposed to create two forests over the ring road. So it's both a building and a forest. And uh, so it's it's a very important program with um, with uh, several uh, housing uh, units, with uh, uh, a large hotel. With uh, give us a, give us a sense of the size. How many acres would you? Just, just is it two acres or is it 50 acres? What's the sense of scale? It's hard to say. I don't have the, the figures uh, in mind, but it's like... Um, okay, I'll dig it up and I'll throw it into <laughs> <okay>. the outro. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what's interesting is that um, it has an economic model because it's uh, quite an important program uh, with uh, offices and hotels, etc., and at the same time, it will create a, a park. And so the, the city of Paris couldn't afford, I mean, to do so many, to create a park like that. And the fact of having this mixed program will create a, a new public space, which will be private in the law, but which will be public in the facts. So that's very interesting. And it's very iconic 
of course. We hit this we hit this tipping point in in Toronto as well where land values reached a point that building over top of existing infrastructure starts to become a viable way of creating new places. When land prices are really low it's very costly, yeah. but when land prices get high enough then the structural engineering required to pull off this kind of feat begins begins to make some sense. I would argue that's one of the benefits of having a compact dense urban city like Paris is that you do become less frivolous with space. You've more respect for space because every little corner of the city is needed to have needed to have a purpose. And I think you've demonstrated that when you hit that tipping point that the industry industry will come forward if you provide them with the opportunity to reinvest in in the fabric of the city. Yes, exactly. We are really looking to every <laughs> every square meter in Paris that is still available for for uh, for new programs and actually we really have to invent space like this air over the ring road like when you see it it's not really a, a land you know but we we saw that something could happen there and that's really the way we are working now and and now we launch a competition about underground areas because we also think that it will be the next big thing in Paris like there's so much underground area and There's the subway, there are some like cables, but we are sure that you can try some other uses also in the underground. And we also want to develop um, things along water and on water. So we there was another competi competition which was about new boats and new programs along the Seine River. So we are really looking at every space that could be invented, not only reinvented. Almost the hunt for space. <laughs> In the Toronto context, we've used the below grade. We have an ex we really have a city underground, 40 yeah. blocks of a path system below ground. Uh, but that arose in part because we're a winter city. It was a way of getting mm. out, out of the cold. But if you look to Amsterdam, Amsterdam has homes on the canal, boats that are homes yep. that are on the canal, that are canal homes, which in and of itself was a hunt for space. It was about using space in different ways, using the water in different ways, using subterranean in areas in different ways, is all about trying to figure out how a city matures and redefines itself as it becomes denser and denser. I'd like to just shift gears a little bit because I've read a little bit about... Uh, your mayor's very mm -hmm. ambitious plans, yeah. uh, prioritizing pedestrians and cyclists over cars. And what has been amazing to me in reading a little bit about some of the debates that have happened in the Paris context, and in particular between the city and the suburbs, is that a lot of the conversations that you're having and the tensions between people who live in the suburbs and want to drive versus people who live in the heart of the city and want to walk and don't want the cars coming into the heart of the city. It's just a classic debate. It's a, it's a debate that exists in Toronto. It exists in New York. It exists in cities all over the world have this classic challenge of sort of who has a right to the core mm. of the city and whether or not Uh, suburban communities have a right to drive into mm, the heart yeah. of the city, given the amount of land, the pollution, the safety issues. Tell me a bit about how that is shaking down in Paris, because I think uh, for a lot of people, they sort of think about that as a problem that only exists in their own mm. city. And to hear an old city, a global city like Paris is having that same struggle, 
on one hand, it's a little bit comforting, but on the other hand, uh, maybe we can share in figuring out the solution to this as cities across the globe. Yeah, exactly. The debate is so passionate. It's always uh, nice to see when you go to other cities that it's the same everywhere and that it's not because you're doing things bad. You know, <laughs> It's just that when you talk about cars, it's you're really talking about the the habits and the and the comfort of people and that's why this topic is so sensitive and and right now in paris it's really a crazy debate a lot of because um the court just announces um announced a few days ago that it was um it was uh, not accepting the fact of uh, closing the riverbanks to cars so uh, like uh, an administrative court rejected our policies that we have already implemented. So hold on a minute. So municipality, and I saw this plan, I've seen the beautiful renderings, municipality closes nine kilometers of the riverfront yeah. in order to make that accessible to pedestrians, exactly. to take the cars away. It gets appealed by who? Who appealed it? It uh, it was uh, it was originally appealed by like the um, police. Uh, the police appealed it, yeah. and the police won. Is what you're telling us? And uh, ah no no sorry, um, it was no no sorry, uh, it was accepted by the police. I want okay. to say, but it was uh, like uh, appealed by uh, some municipalities. <clears throat> in the suburbs. Okay, so this, right is, wing. this is the classic urban-suburban yeah. fight. You've exactly. got suburban municipalities yeah. fighting the inner city and in many ways laying claim to public land and public spaces in the heart of the city because of what, a right to drive? What did they win on? What was the grounds on which they, they won this court case? I mean, they had political arguments, but the court case was more about administrative uh, things. And that's why we are very shocked now because the court said, oh, there were two uh, legal papers which were not complete. So you have to re-change uh, completely your riverbanks. I mean, that's just crazy because we just uh, implemented a new park on the riverbanks. And now the court is saying, oh, finally, one paper was missing. So you should transform it again and give it back to cars. So you're saying so, it was a loophole, basically. It wasn't really about... yeah ideologies, but at some level, the appeal was driven by an ideology, exactly. yeah. which was this um, tension between uh, who has a right to do what in the city. Do I have a right to park my car? Do I have a right to drive my car versus do I have a right to throw a picnic blanket and throw a Frisbee on the river's edge? Yeah, it's a very passionate debate. And the interesting thing is that we often talk about the, the suburbs. And in fact, this appeal was made by um, mayors from the suburbs. But when we look at the figures, most of the cars are actually Parisian people who live in the rich areas of Paris, uh, who are white and male and who are one per car. That's a typical profile of the of the people who who drive God, on the riverbanks. My God, it's the same the world over. <laughs> it's it's not it's not uh, most people are not from the suburbs, and so a lot of people actually live in Paris and could really use um, public transportation, but they they don't want they prefer their car. So it's we 
all all those different cases are mixed up but uh, the the it's not only about people who don't have the option it's really about uh, people who prefer that comfort so that's really important data to go into the conversation because often the argument is made that um in many contexts, that people are pushed out into the suburbs because they can't afford to live in the heart of the city and then forced to drive because the transit isn't so great. But here you have some data that actually demonstrates otherwise. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. pretty pretty important data. Now, how is how is this affecting kind of the ethos of the city? Is it creating tensions between the suburbs and the city? Uh, is it creating a sense that there's, you know, a divided, you're suburban versus being urban? Is it playing out in the way people feel about where they live? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's still, unfortunately, it's, it's still a, a big thing in Paris to to know if you are inside or outside. And when uh, when people buy their house, a lot of people still say, okay, I, I bought something which is just at the edge of Paris, but it's still in Paris, so it's okay. Right, <laughs> no? right, right. Like a lot of people really fear to go to the suburbs. So it's quite crazy and it's really about storytelling. It's really because... Uh, it's really because uh, the the history of Paris has 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 been around the the ring road, and there is a real ring road issue, and um, and simply the fact that the other cities are not called Paris, and <laughs> uh, and are not even called Greater Paris, you know that's that's an important thing because, for example, for foreign firms. Some firms want to have Paris on their address, so they could go to a nice uh, suburb. Which Heck, is, I want Paris on my address. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are some very nice uh, business areas which are just on the other part of the ring road, but some people prefer to be inside Paris. So I think it's really about uh, about the stories that we will be able to tell together because... In any case, Paris is too small for a global city. Like the global city is Paris plus the suburbs. So it would be stupid to reinforce this uh, this um, separation. Like we need the suburbs. But you know, Marion, it really gets at the heart, I think, of um, what we're struggling with in, tw- in the 21st century, which is that our cities are about our identity and our cities are about our values. And the extent to which we can build... We can make the narrative bigger and broader um, is going to result in more inclusive cities. I think that's one of the tensions that that we face. One of the tensions that uh, we've faced in the Toronto context is that historically there was an underdevelopment in transit, in part because the densities were so low, an underdevelopment of transit in the suburbs. And now that we recognize that transit is an asset, that there's a middle class that wants to use transit, uh, that transit investments, in fact, enhance housing prices, there's a desire to have that transit Mm across the entire scale of the city. Well, that's a good thing, uh, but it's also about this question of density and getting the densities right. And I suspect by definition that the Paris suburbs are as well lower density. As a result, they have less of a mix of uses and less amenity and services. Would that be fair to say? It really depends actually on the suburbs. There are some some suburbs which are more like uh, previous industrial suburbs which are also quite dense and which also build a lot of social housing like uh, like Paris. But some other suburbs refuse uh, density and refuse to build social housing. So, I mean, it, there is really not a homogeneous um, suburb situation. It's very different. And we have issues uh, to 
to find the incentives and sometimes uh, the rules to impose to some mayors when when they rule a city in the greater Paris area to take their part in building social housing and and creating more density. And the problem is that we don't have the tools yet to impose that to everybody. And that's very unfair because some cities have 60% of social housing and are still building some, and some cities have 10% and don't want to build more. And so that's really unfair, and we don't have the political tools yet to um, to resolve that situation. You know, Marion, it amazes me as we're talking. I've realized we're, we've been talking about green space and parks. We've been talking about housing. We've been talking about transit. We've been talking about reinvestment, private sector involvement, the role of the municipality. The exciting thing about city building really is that it touches on every aspect of our lives. And this conversation has just reinforced for me that we're more alike than we're different as city builders yeah. uh, in any part of the globe. The struggles that we share are struggles that will probably um, resolve and undo and advance uh, if we can continue these kinds of conversations. So thank you so much for being a part of thank this you. podcast. Thank you. hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as we enjoyed creating it. Thanks to Daniel Fusca for being my Sherpa and lugging all of our equipment to Vienna and producing these episodes alongside me. Thank you to the team at Urban Futures Global Conference for their leadership in facilitating a global dialogue about change in our cities and for sponsoring this Vienna series. And also, just so that you know, you can subscribe to Invisible City Podcast so that you don't miss out. All of our episodes are also on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com. If you like our work, give us a rating on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. Invisible City is a product of Lossless Creative, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Lossless Creative.